Esports Podcast. In this episode, I've got Ben Pfefferman from Amuka Capital and Amuka Esports. Now, as a man who works with so many live facilities, obviously coronavirus has been a bit of a trying time. And I have had Ben on before with Wim Stocks to talk a bit about their coronavirus kind of emergency response plan and how they're getting through it. But I wanted to get him on personally, you know, a couple of months later um, as we're progressing through the pandemic to see how he's faring and also what he's been up to. They're currently raising capital through a public platform throughout this period of time as well, which is an interesting story, I think, that I wanted to highlight. So Ben and I get along well. We had some great conversations in this LinkedIn live stream turn podcast. So enjoy. For those of you who have also lost your employment or are looking to skill up, we're trying to help here at Big Esports. We have an esports fundamentals course, which is helping people to understand an entry point into the employment within the esports and gaming market, whether you're coming straight out of college, university, high school, or whether you're trying to transition from another sport. To provide support for all of you, we're offering a pay-as-you-feel model. So you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash education. If you've lost your main line of employment and you can't afford to pay right now at all, that's perfectly fine. We're able to offer it up to you for free. You can pay now, you can pay later, you can choose whatever you want. The course is usually $127 AUD. You can take it now for whatever you feel is appropriate or whatever you're able to afford. Hopefully, this will help a few of you get back on your feet in the short term and also the long term. We're live, Ben. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. And yourself? Yeah, pretty good, man. I've had a I had a late late night last night of meetings, and I feel like I look like it this morning. <laughs> but where uh, that's what happens yeah, when you're sitting in the future here in Australia. Sometimes you got to have those 10 p.m., 10:30 p.m. meetings. You are in the future. That's pretty cool. Mm. I'm in the time past. zones. <laughs> time zones is something that you start to experience more and more, especially in esports business, right? Like we're doing some work with a with a group out of um, Barcelona and New York City, which is terrible for time zones for me in Australia. So our meetings are 10 p.m. most of the time. Yeah. Do you ever make that? Does that joke ever not get old? Like telling people like you're living in the past. <laughs> I usually just tell people the world's still functioning. We're still going all right. You know, I'm in the future and, and everything's yeah. all good here. They, they, and they seem to like hearing that. <laughs> so I guess, you know, we, um, you've been on the podcast or you've been on this LinkedIn Live twice as a whole, right? So I guess the first time was part of the Shark Tank style series that we did, which was the founder's pitch. And then I had you on back with Wim Stocks to talk about coronavirus um, economic response. And I think that's part of probably what we'll talk about today. For those people listening who haven't heard of you before, haven't seen you posting on LinkedIn, um, can you just give us a bit of a rundown as to yourself and, and your business? Yeah, sure. My name is Ben Pfefferman, and uh, I run a company called Amuka Esports, and we are Canada's leader in esports venues, leagues, and tournaments. Uh, we're a Canadian-based company, and uh, we have a location in Toronto and a second location in Windsor. So I guess the, the first obvious cab off the rank is coronavirus, right? You guys, you know, being shut down. We did talk about this a little bit before. Um, so why don't we start off? You know, we got a lot to talk about today, but why don't we start off just going over a couple of those points? You know, how'd you guys fare through that? How's, how's Canada going with the restrictions? Are they easing? You know, what's the bottom line looking like for, for Amuka throughout that period? Yeah, so I think our, our strategy when COVID hit mid-March, which I think is pretty much a standard for a lot of markets in North America or even around the world, uh, is number one, get lean. You know, we had a lot of things that were nice to have, um, and we had to make some tough decisions. Just mm. we, we were real with it from the onset. Um, we knew that this would be, we thought probably sometime June, maybe July at, at latest, um, you know, we'd be out. So um, we had to make those decisions and move forward. Um, we took advantage of a lot of the government relief programs, which are very, which are excellent to Canada for businesses, for employees. 
Um, then the second one was, you know, pivoting our, our business model. So we went to uh, equipment rentals um, and we moved all our events online. And uh, it's been it's been unbelievable. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot more people competing online than we do land. Um, so we're going to continue to do that. But um, we, we're never going to forget what we love. And that's live events. And based on what we're seeing in Canada, specifically in Toronto, um, we're what's called phase three. And we're hoping to be open, um, I think, sometime in July. Yeah, I remember talking to another business owner in Canada. Um, I, don't, I don't know if she wants her story made public, but it seems like the economic response there or the support from the government was pretty good. It was, from memory, it was something around 70% of, of wage support for, for employees. Yeah, exactly. There's a 75% wage subsidy that's available. Um, as well, most business quali- businesses qualify for a $40,000 interest-free loan, uh, of which 25% is uh, forgiven if you uh, pay the principal back uh, in about two years from now. So those are all great programs for small businesses. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. You know, we, we had some similar stuff here in Australia. I think if you could prove that your revenue had dropped by 30 or 50% year on year, um, your employees were applicable for what they call job keeper, which is a $1,500 payment a fortnight AED. So $3,000 a month per employee. And that enables some of my friends, especially in the events industry, you know, to, to kind of be laid off and, and then brought back with back pay. Um, and, you know, a lot of people here in Australia ended up saying, well, you know, $1,500 is X amount of days per week for me. So they were working three days per week or they were working five days at a, at a discounted rate. So, you know, it seems like we had pretty good support in both of our countries. It's, it's really funny, like, um, you know, Thermal Take was the first brand I worked in in this industry, Taiwanese company. All of my employees were from different countries in Asia. And I remember my sales guy who I was extremely close with from Singapore used to always tell me that him and all of his friends within Singapore they had two countries to choose from to migrate to. It was Australia and Canada. And I see so many, you know, so many likenesses between between the two countries for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely similar markets. And I think for companies that want to test in uh, different markets, Canada, you get a little bit of kind of US, kind of Europe. And Australia, you get kind of Europe, kind of Asia. So, mm. uh, yeah, I, I see some good similarities. Yeah, that's pretty true. And I'm seeing that a little bit at the moment. You know, companies wanting to expand from Asia to Australia first before they go off to the US because my experience you know say with Corsair you know Australia is 10% of the US in so many different ways you know 10% of total sales 10% of population size um, and the consumer and spending habits are almost identical they're buying the same kind of products at the same kind of price points but even more so in Australia because we have a you know we have a higher um, minimum wage higher cost of living but also as part of that, usually we get fleeced a little bit on, on things like games <laughs> being right. 110 plus dollars yeah. instead of you know 60 like they are in the US. But that's that's the that's the price you pay, I guess, for living in a country like Australia. We do too. You know, we always get uh, the short end of the stick compared to what US consumers get. Mm. So what's the so what does the spin back? Actually, I think another another thing I'd like to talk about that you said is get lean. So that's something that I've talked about so much, and that's something that. You know, I've loved to do in the past with big esports is, you know, make sure that we have a very low burn throughout that period of time. So, like, where where did most of the fat come from, you guys, when you took a good hard look at it? Was it employees? Was it projects you were running? Was it marketing? Can you give us, like, a, just a bit of a run Yeah, listen, it's never, you know, no one likes to talk about that um, because mm. they're real people. They're hardworking people that are working and, and contributing and getting lean means that, you know, there's not going to be a place for everyone. So it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. I don't mind talking about it because it's reality of business. I kind of like, you know, you ever watch Shark Tank, you know, Kevin O'Leary, you know him well. 
So, you know, he has a very funny analogy. You know, he every dollar is like a soldier and he just like doesn't want to send them in harm's way unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think when you look at your capital and especially in the esports industry where uh, capital is becoming more and more scarce, you have to ask yourself, are you really willing to part with those soldiers, those dollars to go into this um, when, you know, they may be put into harm's way, you know, figuratively. So um, for us personally, it came down to a lot of content, a lot of design, things like that, that we were really producing a lot of that. Those are the things that you just have to pull back on a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, that meant, you know, we just, we had to cut our staff from about 12 down to about seven or eight. Mm. Yeah, and that's it, you're definitely right. It's not an easy thing, you know. I've had to let employees go in the past, and um, you are dealing with real people. And I remember, I remember, I can't remember which podcast I was listening to about this, but you know, often saying that owners of businesses or bosses will want to keep employees on to keep them happy, um, to keep giving them money. But ultimately, you're not doing anyone a great service if that kills your company because then no one has a job. You don't have a company to own, and nobody is employed just just for you wanting to save your own face or to save your own you know, personal insecurities with what would that person think of me when that kind of stuff happens. And that it's like you said, you know, sometimes you have to take the hit as a business owner and it's an unfortunate part of it. I think uh, I remember one of my mentors, um, I don't know if it wants to be names, but he, he told me that in name the past... Names, he was, name names, <laughs> He told me in the past that he was known as a smiling assassin. And when, when they had to let employees go, they would fly him over um, to, to different countries to let people go because he became such a wizard at it. He was like, look, I never enjoyed it, but I just became good at it. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a good movie about that. I forget who it is. George Clooney, who's a downsizer um, yeah. for companies. Yeah, listen, uh, you know, I, I tend to like to do it personally, um, let people go. Um, you have to do it with sensitivity. You have to be sensitive to what's going on and understanding of their situation. Um, but yeah, just like with anything, like you don't want to be dating someone. Just you don't want to lead on people for the wrong reasons, and that's the same thing if you're keeping an employee that's not good for your company's budget or culture. Mm. And, and it, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this. This is something that it's not a it's not a fully formed concept I have in my mind yet, but it's just something through personal experience I've been talking about. Is is I've worked with two different or worked in two different type of companies in the past. One which I think underhired population of staff, but but overhired in regards to qualifications. So there should have maybe been more staff, but it felt fairly comfortable there because while everyone was maybe overworked, they were all extremely competent in the job they did. And I've worked in other companies, which is the opposite, where they seem to overhire people who are underqualified. So no one had too much work to do. People were quite comfortable, but a lot of the time it could be a struggle within there. And I've, I found that really interesting. I wonder if you had any experience or that rings any bells with you at all. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like I'm leaning towards the former. I'd rather have a few people that are overqualified. Um, trying to think why. I think, you know what, just what the way I work and relationships with people, it's so much built about trust. Um, and I don't like to distribute it willy-nilly. Um, I like mm -hmm. to have an inner circle to work with that, and really empower them, build them, and eventually for them to be leaders. Um, and I just find too many people, it's hard to manage, things don't get done properly. Um, and yeah, I would say over... Was the term you say overvalued or overqualified? Well, like over, over, yes, yeah, so I yeah, overqualified and heavily experienced. Yeah, and I, I think so. From my personal experience, I think the former is better, and I think I think the latter is something that plagues esports quite a lot, but just by design. Because I've had this with my friends in the past. You know, they wanted to scale up. They've maybe raised a little bit of capital, but it's like, hey, I need to hire a head of marketing, and then you go on 
you know, seek.com.au and you look at what's the average wage for a marketing employee in Australia, well, I mean, that's 75,000 AUD and that's just a manager, not, not a, you know, a senior executive. And you go, well, crap, you know, I've, yeah. I've only raised $250,000. How am I going to do this? So often I think you're kind of forced to, to do that. And you're, and I think in esports, a lot of the time you're forced to try to pick those people who can develop themselves into the future. Like using another example is when I was at Thermaltake, um, I brought two interns under me and now those, both of those guys, thankfully are flourishing very well within that, within that industry. But I was lucky enough to be able to pick the right people who I thought, hey, these guys have that culture or have like that starting culture of something that I'm going to be able to grow out of them with a little bit of training. But it's not always perfect and I, I haven't always picked that well. I've, I've done well sometimes and not well others, but I find that's a that's an issue I think that's in the esports industry just by design of where we're at, that fans are expecting an extremely professional and polished product at the same time when these teams are trying to operate off you know, small cap raises um, and not much revenue coming through the door. There's like a little bit of a disconnect between the two. And it makes me wonder sometimes, did the esports industry force itself to professionalize too fast or, you know, I'm getting a bit, I'm getting a bit <laughs> philosophical, I think, here at the moment, getting a bit ahead of myself. Ah, let me stroke my beer and think about it. <laughs> exactly. You're the one with the glasses. You're the smart one, not me. Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. Um, listen, you know, to that point, just on, on management strategies, the idea of keeping, you know, a few sort of overqualified people together, keeping the team small, that's a very safe approach to doing it. And I think that if you really want to do it, if you really want to build a good company culture, you need to find and develop new talent. And the only way with that is, is a lot of under-experienced people uh, joining the team, seeing how they fit and seeing how you can develop. And I think some of the best employees that I've ever worked with or managed are people who came in, you know, from the ground floor as uh, interns or entry-level positions and had the opportunity to show what they can do. And if you have that mentality, just going to keep with my core people and have them do as many tasks as possible and keep working them hard, you're really missing out on developing your next diamond in the rough. Mm, yeah, that's really true. And something I've personally really struggled with is um, is two things. And, and if anyone's watching this, one is, you know, supporting supporting new people coming into the esports industry primarily through internships where a lot of the time it's hey i think i've got some value that i can provide someone hands-on especially you know trying to get more women into the industry um you know and, and more underserved groups into the industry but then it's also the fact of i think i'm too busy and don't have time to to teach someone else and i've, I've had this problem early in the business myself where i realized that one of my employees i was i was kind of paying them to be the university course if that makes sense you know they were following me and, and paid as a full-time employee but due to the pivot of the business i basically had to kind of handhold them throughout that whole process and the scary thing for me is you know bringing on an intern and not being able to actually do them the proper service you know, that they require like sure we've got enough money to pay them so they're not an unpaid intern which is you know no one wants to do that but just wondering you know how you can actually justify putting aside the time to be able to train someone like that when you're already you know in a busy scrappy small startup you know like you said you've got you know under 10 employees now you know similar here with big esports we're working on some massive projects behind the scenes which is requiring you know 100 percent of my mental effort at the moment it's really hard to bring someone else into that yeah you know i think with interns um you know we've generally speaking i can't say about all of them um they are unpaid but with a stipend you know to cover their basic expenses um I've always been of the mindset um, that if, you know, someone's working for sort of, you know, below minimum wage or under what the current market value is, um, you need to make that up for them with, you know, with, with value. Um, you need to create that for them. 
And um, I, I've always thought it was important to only take, you know, maybe two or three of two or three interns per summer uh, to be able to work with them hands on, to give them the experience, because that's what I would have wanted when I was in university is I would have wanted someone in my industry to take me under the wing and show me and provide me with a lot of things that I couldn't get otherwise. Um, but again, if you're just doing menial work, um, you know, just tasks that really should be diverted to someone who's getting paid, I don't think that's fair. And I think people, a lot of students are getting taken advantage like that. And it's a tough job market. And sometimes people just take what they can get. Um, but really, I think students, you have four summers and that's it until like you're out on your own, presuming you got to make money right away. Um, so you got to be really careful about what you take and make sure that whatever that position is, it's providing great value. Yeah, and I, and I think some fantastic advice that was that was given to one of my friends, well, one of my other friends, her name's Natalie Cooper, and she's a senior marketing manager in video here in Australia, is that, you know, people who want to work in the esports and gaming market shouldn't underestimate the power of working in a corporate or a large corporation beforehand. And I've got a friend right now who's already done a bit of work in the esports space and was seeking employment, decided to go back to uni. And, you know, the suggestion from me to him as well as someone else is go work for a big four first. Go and do some work experience there because you get to understand company structure. You get to understand what the nine to five of the office is like. You get to understand what their reporting processes is like. And this is something that I push quite heavily from value on big esports side is that I know who Corsair in Australia reports to and what that means. I know that by Corsair in Australia, they report to Taiwan and that means a certain thing. That means they want their data um, perceived in a certain way that means they're more likely to spend money on certain projects you know i know that that amd is operated in a certain way in australia versus nvidia i know who's likely to have budgets what are u.s companies like to work in the inside working at corsair versus Thermaltake being a taiwanese company on the inside i know how they like their reports circulated and you know the taiwanese companies um much more prefer bigger numbers and logos slapping um, you know, to be able to prove their internal worth compared to, say, a US company who can be a little bit more philanthropic and things like that too. So, you know, I think that's extremely important. And we're seeing that a lot, you know, in the esports industry when people come from that lens where they've just done a lot of volunteering at events, they've helped to manage some social media, but there are so many gaps um, that they don't understand that they're missing just around that stuff. And I think, you know, I think reporting really is is kind of the simple how you can tell in five minutes whether someone has that experience or not. You say, hey, can you just do me an after-action report for this, you know, this influencer campaign? And if they don't know what's in that, then I think that kind of tells you, like, pretty fast. Yeah, and just to clarify for the non-Australian viewers, when you say the big four, are you talking about banks? Go work for the banks? Oh, sorry, big four, big four consultancy firms, so KPMG, Deloitte, ah, okay. um, e e Y, et cetera. Yeah, yeah okay, because we have the big six, which we call our banks. It wasn't just yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I don't even think of that because we also have the big four banks in Australia. That is extremely confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's true. And I mean, we're doing some work with KPMG behind the scenes at the moment as well. So you get you get good access into that stuff. But I mean, it goes both ways. You yeah. know, talking to some of the directors at KPMG, they're like, hey, how can we seem like a less stuffy, you know, suit-wearing old white man accountancy firm? How can we seem like a little bit more cool and, and exciting, you know, for younger people to come and work in? Because what would you rather? Like, would if you got two offers, one was from like Uber Eats and one was from KPMG, you know, you're very likely you're going to go the Uber Eats route. Totally. Totally. Hands down. Yeah, it's like KPMG. Like, can I show up to KPMG like this? No. No, exactly. Exactly. Their office is great, though. Yeah, their, their office in Melbourne is like, I remember the first time I walked in, because I don't, I don't have much experience in that corporate 
thing as well. I remember asking one of my friends, like, what does KPMG actually do? <laughs> I tried to look up, it shows my naivety around the around the mainstream market. But they look like an evil dictator's lair, like the lobby. It's fantastic. There's people in suits, there's you know, it's bare with iPads, there's a spiral staircase in the center, you can see the whole city from there. And I was like, All right, this is this is how the other side works. This is corporate land. <laughs> yeah, that, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So you you guys are also, I guess, moving topic slightly. You guys are also raising funds at the moment publicly through Front Funder. Can you walk me through some of that process? It's it's almost like a, a semi public listing. And for those people who are who are listening and watching, you know, Mook is raising capital publicly through Front Funder. You know, they've got a certain amount of equity up for grabs, um, and people can just like with uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter can basically purchase a portion of the company online. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, a platform called Front Funder. Um, Funder is without an E, if you want to look it up. Um, and uh, yeah, the value proposition they have to companies is, look, raising money revol- uh, involves a lot of compliance and working with investors. Um, and then they just make it a seamless system. And even though, and that's what's kind of interesting about, about us being a Front Funder, um, you know, my business partner and I, Aaron and I, we have an investment bank, Amuka Capital. And we could do, we could put trades through and, and onboard investors and do all the compliance and suitability, all that stuff. We're totally set up to do that. Um, but it's just such a pain in the ass. And so instead of having to constantly deal with investors like that, I'd rather just be focusing on telling the Amuka story. This is what we're doing. This is our plan. If you're interested in investing, here's the link. All our DD materials up there and you can invest directly in the platform. And there'll be a shareholder just like you, just like me, well, you and me and everyone else, so, uh, we, the 90 shareholders that we have. Um, and it simplifies that process. Mm. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, it, it's an interesting way to, I guess, get people from the public to buy in, right? Can you, a, a really interesting question for me, and it's okay if you can't say this, can, can you say, like, are there a lot of just regular Joes throwing in, like, the, the minimum amount? Or are you seeing more interest from people doing the five to 10k parcels or is this is this just a public way to get some interest for the larger people to come through with 50 100 200k i think the value add is uh, both it's good for larger investors to come on the platform and see it and see the raise um there's another sort of sister platform called deal square for brokers that they would probably invest in with larger check sizes mm-hmm. um so yeah it really is it's a lot of joes um putting in 250 bucks 500 bucks thousand bucks and um, something I just, you know, yesterday, um, I actually just picked up the phone and called a bunch of them. I'm just curious, like, who are you and uh, why did you invest in our company? I just thought that was something I should do. But I don't have to. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was great hearing about them. Like, some of them knew a lot about esports. Some of them didn't know a lot. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just fun to answer questions. So, you know, we always wanted to have a lot of shareholders. Um I think it's great to have more people that are promoting you and supporting you as you move forward and the company progresses. And um, I think with our first round, we had a lot of guys from Bay Street, like Wall Street equivalent, uh, you know, financial guys. We didn't really have a lot of esports guys or gamers. Um, So now it's nice to see this round after calling a bunch of them and be like, you know, what what are you doing? What's your interest? Um, A lot of them are in the industry or people who are gamers themselves. Um, And I think that just gives us a more holistic, you know, cap table. Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing you highlighted that's important is, you know, a book by Seth called This Is Marketing that I listened to on, on Audible. It was fantastic. And one point that I took away from that book that I think highly resonated with me, especially with the esports market, 
And something that you just said is that people aren't focused enough on their first 50, which is their first 50 customers. And if you can talk to those people and say, hey, why do you follow me? You know, how could we get you to spend more money with me? How do we get you to like the brand more? Why do you like the brand? Do you talk to your friends about us? I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? If you can call up these guys and, you know, they can say, wow, you know, Ben actually called through to me. Now I'm going to go tell my other friends. You know, maybe they just, maybe they just work in an accountancy firm and, you know, they live by themselves and they have a dog and a, and a girlfriend and, you know, they've got some disposable income. And they're like, screw it, I'm going to throw 500 bucks at esports. Maybe they're going to come back into the office and say, hey, you know, when they're having their next company lunch or beers on a Friday night, you know, you might get a few other guys just, yeah, I'll, I'll take a punt at that. And it becomes almost like a, almost like a bet, I guess, at, at that stage. But the, and in the good point or in the good sense that people are really riding through then, you know, they've put their money where their mouth is and they're really invested in your, in your growth. Yeah. And, and even just being on the platform myself, there's so many other cool companies um, that I, I want to invest in. Honestly, I just like, don't have the time to fill out the paperwork. <laughs> That's terrible. It's just, like, I yeah. want to get around to it, but um, yeah, like kombucha, like I love fermented tea, um, you know, some really cool companies there, uh, companies around plant-based, uh, plant-based proteins and, and things like that. Uh, breweries. So like, yeah, there's like cool everyday businesses that you have the chance to invest in. Um, so I think that's where crowdfunding is a lot. It's sort of the first iteration was the reward-based crowdfunding, you know, the Indiegogo's and Kickstarter's launch a product. I think sort of 2.0 is now you can invest in, in legitimate businesses. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess another example for anyone who's wanting to know, just I was just Googling it. So there's an Australian esports team called Order who listed themselves on public crowdfunding platform um, in that closed in November 2018. And it was called, well, the investment round closed in 2018. And the platform was called Virtual. And they raised 361K AUD or around 250K USD. And talking to them internally was a lot of the, it was a lot of the similar stuff to what you said. You know, there were a lot of, um, and I think their minimum was 50 bucks. So there was a lot of fans just throwing in 50 bucks here and there, but equally as many, you know, 500s to 10,000s and that, and that kind of stuff too. If I could have, I, yeah, the, the limit on that platform was 250. If it was 50 bucks, I would have done 50 bucks. Like just want yeah. to in the door, you know, get people uh, as part of the company and they want to go in for 50, go in for 50. Why not? Mm. And, it, and it's really interesting. You said, you know, I didn't think about too much of it. The difference between something like Front Funder and Kickstarter, not only do you get access to the, the product, but also you gain ownership with the company that comes through the whole, you know, the whole period. Like imagine the people who found it, who, you know, invested in things on, on Kickstarter, you know, like various watch companies and board games that became massive companies, <laughs> you know, you could own 0.1% of that. Like GoPros and all these things that probably started on crowdfunding sites. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it would be what's, really the, cool. what's the uptake been? Or actually, I mean, the uptake's pretty obvious because it's public, but what's the process like to get listed onto there? I know I know. talking to order internally, they said it, it was quite difficult at some stages to get listed on there. What, what's the process like if someone else wants to do it? Yeah, so there was definitely a very rigorous vetting for, uh, procedure. Um, we went through all the financials. That certain different teams went through it. The marketing team went through it. The compliance team went through it. Uh, we had to submit all of our documents, um, identify all the risks. You know, I guess uh, kind of a light version of what you'd have to do if you with a public filing. Um, and uh, they asked us all the questions, and we, we just told them this is what we're all about, and as long as you just share all the information you have and you're transparent about everything, um, you'll get onboarded. Yeah. 
don't know, hopefully it's hopefully it's going to go pretty well for you guys. Have you guys reached the minimum yet? Do you, do you have a minimum? Yeah, yeah. We I don't even remember what the minimum was, but yeah, we we definitely reached the minimum. Uh, I think we're about 75 percent the way there, and uh, we got another I think about three weeks to go. So yeah, I'm definitely confident um, that we'll be able to close it off. And you know, when you close the funding round, it definitely gives you the momentum to you know move forward with other things that you're doing. And even though listen, it's it's a small round; it's half a million dollars. Um, work, you know, in the Canadian esports market, that's a very small amount, but yeah, we're, we're going to make that go a long way and it's really going to take us to the next level. Mm. And I guess changing topic slightly, something we talked about off camera that I want to bring on camera is gaming versus esports and kind of where the internet cafes are headed. You know, I was saying that I've got a, I've got a close friend here in Australia who owns, it's been like four or five internet cafes in lower socioeconomic outer ring areas um, who've been performing very well in the past 10 years. But for him, in the past 10 years, it hasn't really been about computers. You know, he's got a max of 20 in, in each store. Um, some, I think, have 12. And then also for him, it's never really been about esports because he's found out that if he runs a three to $5,000 competition, you know, the best players will kind of drive out to them, stomp all the locals, you know, complain about the process and then leave. Um, and, you know, for, for him, uh, they've been making a lot of money off card gaming for a long time, you know, providing tables, you know, doing Magic the Gathering tournaments um, and selling products through there. But now, because of coronavirus, they've been able to pivot to become one of the largest board game sales companies in Australia as well, um, you know, with a lot of history in Warhammer and 40K and things like that, you know, and then going into more the nerdy board games and now even just selling the casual, you know, Scrabble and, and Snake and, and things like that too. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about about that and kind of the diversification income streams for for Amuka. yeah uh the land center model I, I don't i don't really get if you're just gonna have a bunch of computers and charge hourly rates um because that's not building gaming communities and i just i don't see any value maybe you can keep the lights on and your overhead could be low like i'm not saying you can't make money like that but you know i think this is about building communities and you're just not going to get that otherwise so uh tournaments are the way to go you have to build them out you have to have great tournament organizers that are going to come in, bring the right people in. But the other problem, and this is to your point, and like, I'm sorry if anyone watching has already heard me make this analogy before because I make it a lot, but like, Chris, did, did you play um, any traditional sports growing up? Yeah, yeah, a bit of cricket, uh, volleyball, yeah. Cricket, like, like, you know, beer league type of cricket, that type of thing? Yeah. So what was what was the prize pool in your, in your uh, cricket league? Zero dollars. Exactly. Zero dollars. Did you still come out and play? Yeah. Did you still have a good time? Yeah. Did you ever say, I'm not going to play because there's not a $500 prize pool? <laughs> no. So what really bothers me, and now we're, okay, now we can take the jacket off. <laughs> what really <laughs> bothers me is that, I'm not talking about pros, I'm talking about amateur gamers, uh, have this like culture of entitlement where they only want to play and compete if there's prize money. And like that, I just think it's so wrong. And like we've created this culture and we're feeding it by like making bigger and bigger prize pools for amateurs. Again, not talking about pros, they do this for a living, totally different. So I think that, you know, to build a proper gaming community, you really have to make sure that people are playing for something other than money. They're playing mm -hmm. because it means something. They're playing because they want to get to the next level. They're playing because they want to maybe get signed to a team or something like that. But again, if it's just about the money, then yeah, exactly. Semi pros or pros will just come in, win all the tournaments, take the cash, and get out of the air. And like, what mm -hmm. kind of community have you built in that in that regard? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I've seen exactly the same with land parties in the past too. 
you know, like a regular bring your own computer LAN party. You know, so there's there's been one here in, in my state who's been pretty consistent at 400 people coming to it for the past, you know, eight or so years that it's been operating. And, you know, they had exactly the same thing. You know, they hear the buzzword of esports. They go, all right, they got SteelSeries or Intel to throw a little bit of cash behind it. You know, they run a $1,000 CSGO competition, but, you know, one pro team will just fly in and just absolutely clean house and 16-0 everyone. And then no one has a good time. <laughs> Except The only exception to that rule is Smash. Smash people are totally okay if the pros come into play and they want to see pros come into play. And like, I guess they're more part of that experience versus you're right. Every other title like Fortnite uh, players don't want to see the best players come in and don't appreciate that the way I guess other gaming communities do. You know, do you know when I saw that shift, like for me, when I played Counter-Strike Source, I was still going to LAN parties or, or still going to internet cafe competitions where, you know, the first place prize was a couple of hundred bucks and it was $25 entry fee per player to come and compete. And I was perfectly fine with, with going 0-3 in my group stage because of the experience that I got. And you see this discussion happening a lot online with older Counter-Strike players saying to younger ones, like, I was perfectly happy to go to a LAN and get 16-2, 16-2, 16-2 because I got a chance to play against better people and to learn and, and to pay a high entry fee. With ACL Pro in Australia, Call of Duty players were paying a $40 entry fee to go to tournaments and still happy if they got knocked out for you know $1,000 first place prize pool. And when I really saw that shift start to change with, with MOBAs, so when I tried to run League of Legends tournaments, um, they didn't want to pay they didn't want to pay any entry fee, but I could make them pay five dollars. And if the top team at that time in Australia, Team Immunity, were to attend, you saw a lot of the comments. People like Team Immunity's there; they're going to win. I'm not going. If I can't win, you know, I'm not going to go. And I I wonder if that is somehow attached to um, when games started becoming free instead of being paid. I, I don't know exactly what that's attached to, but around that 2012, 2013 time when League of Legends really started coming into the space and, and you know, Heroes of New Earth went from being paid to free, you know, Dota 2, um, you know, kind of came into beta and, and was coming out strong um, and a lot more free games came out. That's when I saw a major shift in that mentality where people wanted prize money, they didn't want to pay entry fees and they only wanted to compete if they had a chance to win. And that's what, I, I think the difference is that, pr- that price, uh, the, the cash price, because... Let's take it back to traditional sports for a second. I don't know, I don't always like going going back, but um, um, cricket. You know, if you were playing in a cricket tournament, and who's your favorite cricket player? Um, Adam Gilchrist. Adam Gilchrist was in the tournament. Okay, and it's a fun tournament with all all your buddies. Would you ever say I'm not going to play in this tournament because Adam Gilchrist is in this tournament? No, no. No, he probably paid five times the amount. Like, say with me, if I'm going to play a you know pick a basketball league. Uh, and you're telling me that, uh, you know, uh, LeBron or like someone huge is going to come and play. Of course they're going to play. I want to play with the best, even if I'm terrible and shit. But for some mm. reason, when there's money involved, people just like forget community experience. They're just totally focused on the money. Mm. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned about the fighting games community. You know, if, if anyone, if any company comes to me and says, hey, you know, I want to have a bit of a taster of esports and they want people to go to a physical location, I mean, you know, coronavirus pending, obviously. It's yeah. always fighting games for me because I love the scrappy nature and, and it makes me feel like what CSGO used to be when it was on release, when I used to run 16-team internet cafe tournaments. It makes me feel like what Counter-Strike Source was when I was a junior player, you know, going there and having, you know, eight to 16 teams rock up to internet cafe because they, they love it. You know, they'll slap 20 bucks down on the table, win and takes all. You know, they're used to playing live and in person. They don't care about a professional studio set up. They don't care about a big prize pool. They care about having the chance to play and meet other people and have fun. 
So let I totally agree. So let's break that down. Why? What makes the FGC different from other communities when it comes to their attitudes? You know, let's say towards towards prize pools. I think part of it is you know they've got minuscule professional prize pools as well, right? Like fourth sure. place prize at Evo, which is the biggest tournament in the world for Smash, which is the biggest game, is like three thousand dollars. Even like though um, at uh, Evo Japan, I don't know if it was the ultimate or the melee, but yeah, the winner won like a, a controller. There, yeah. there was a cash prize. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And and I think a lot of it too is they hate online play from what I've seen. You yeah. know, lots of issues with net codes, server issues and things like that too. It's a really, and this is what Counter-Strike used to be as well, to always do it on land. That was a very common saying in Australia, do it on land. Yeah. 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 That's very true. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I think those communities are great. And if you're in, especially a non-endemic sponsor, um, I think it's a great game to get in. I think the everyone more or less understands you can watch the game and when your life bar is over, you're done, right? It's got pretty easy to follow. I mean, Counter-Strike, I guess, is also pretty easy. Um, yeah, so I think for all those reasons, it makes sense to come in. But yeah, for whatever reasons, sponsors aren't going in the same way others. Maybe because it's an individual game versus a team game. Every other major esport is team-based, like, you know, that has major prize pooling, like, you know, I guess, except for Fortnite. Um, so maybe, I actually said, why doesn't Let's say Riot, who's they're going to do a fighting game. What about a team-based fighting game? Can that shake up the whole the whole scene with a type of game like that? Yeah, possibly. I mean, you could do tag team, right? What what's that fighting game that has tag team? Uh, DBZ Dragon Ball Fighters, right? Um, you've got multiple. You know, you've got multiple heroes. I think Injustice do it as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a comment here from just from Chris Reed in the in the LinkedIn live chat saying it was Melee where first got a controller. First place got a controller. Uh, yeah, I had a feeling it'd be melee, not ultimate. Yeah, they got a controller. Yeah. Wow. Came all the way to Japan for your controller. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And that, and Spina, it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time is how to, you know, get some more get some more money into the fighting game scene. And it's it's really hard from you know, talking to Bandai Namco, who I've been talking to a little bit, it's you know, explaining to them my thoughts is that it's it's really hard for traditional endemic sponsors to get involved because they're playing on a console. So that cuts out Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, you know, Antec, computer cases, all these kind of people. They're playing with a fight stick. There's only a couple of fight stick brands, really. You know, it's like Razer and Madcats, et cetera. And they're not wearing headsets. And, you know, they're sitting on a gaming chair. And and that's about it, really. So from, from you know, from the endemic sponsor side of it, I remember this being Thermal Take myself, trying to get into the industry so hard. But just not finding a way. You know, I had a player who was fairly decent who I sponsored, but he was the only one walking around the arena with a headset on because none of the others used yeah. a headset. I, I hear that argument, but also, like, I don't know any a, any player who's, like, you know, very involved in FGC that doesn't play another PC game, right? Mm-hmm. They're all gamers. Like, everyone's playing on multiple games. Everyone's, maybe they're all console only, but, you know, most people are playing PC games that are, you know, playing fighting games competitively. So, I still think it's like part of your market, but yeah, I understand. You know, I understand where they're going. Maybe mm-hmm. for ratings, maybe because there's no opportunity for franchise leagues. Um, those all could be reasons too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There just needs to be. You know, I feel like someone has to step in and, and upgrade. You know, what's going on? Because it's 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 sad to see that you know the biggest fighting games tournament of the year, which will get two hundred sixty thousand concurrent viewers, which is you know four x what what Flashpoint just got for its CS:GO one million dollar league for its finals, you know, fourth place prize can't even cover their flights in combination <laughs> to yeah. play in the tournament, which is crazy, you know? 
That is the of your ship. You know, one one thing that I didn't mention before when we we're talking about the crowdfunding as well is there's a, there's a team in Korea, a League of Legends team that's that's crowdfunding their entry into the LCK into the League of Legends Championships Korea. Do you have any any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, you know, as a fan, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Leafs and Raptors. Let's say in traditional sports, uh, I, I don't want to use local examples, uh, but. Um, Listen, do I really love the ownership group, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment? Yeah, they're great guys, but like it's run by big corporations, it's run by billionaires, and a lot of esports teams are. So maybe as a fan, you can't really connect with that as much as you could if an org was owned by the players or you know more grassroots people. So I think that is a really cool opportunity, and everyone wants a Cinderella story, right? But you can't, you don't always get it. Like um, if the Boston uh, opera, no impact impact if boston's overwatch team won the championship like are we all like just so happy for robert Kraft and what he's built and how much money that his franchise is going to make him like do we all get behind that story or do we get behind the story of you know everyday esports entrepreneurs taking the chance and getting into a new league so i think crowdfunding like that um sort of removes that barriers that ownership is kind of millionaires and elitists and really gives it that grassroots ownership feel yeah, that's true, and I guess it that that rings true with how you know a lot of these esports industries work, right? Say like Fortnite, you know the Australian Open, which is a you know one of the largest tennis tournaments in the world. They have a Fortnite tournament every year now, every year now called Summer Smash, and this year it was won by Brezzo, a seventeen-year-old controller wielding Fortnite player from Queensland, Australia. He beat people. He beat people from Flashpoint from China. He beat people from. He beat Benji Fishy flown over from London. He beat FaZe players. He beat 100 Thieves players. You know, this kid's never, and that's never a great played story. in a live tournament before. That's a Cinderella story, yeah. Mm, exactly. And that's something that you can't get. You know, you don't get that in the NBA. You don't just get random, you know, a group of five random kids that come together and, you know, can just dominate the competition. But you get that with, um, you know, and what some of the people in the chat are saying. You get that in fighting games, you know, become the next Sonic Fox. You get that in Fortnite with Brezzo and things like that. Yeah, that's why, you know, um, you know, whatever Cinderella story it is, um, you know, when you see a team like Mouse Sports, you know, or, yeah, I don't know, just teams that sort of came out from, like, sort of under the radar and took big tournaments, or when I was at DreamHack last year, um, uh, a team called the Peeps, uh, you know, beat out Cloud9 and G2. Totally, like, no one's heard of this team, and, you know, now they got signed by the Pittsburgh Knights, and mm. all is good, but that's... A ownership team that you can get behind and you feel good about, and and I just think it makes sense. If I'm gonna, how, what's the minimum investment, by the way, for that uh, for that team? For the, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up right. I'm gonna yeah. look that up right now. You know, maybe that's gonna be it's LCK. It's a uh, LCK or LPL. LCK, yeah, League LCK. of Legends Champions Korea. So look, I really don't have a favorite in the LCK. Really doesn't matter to me at this point. So if I drop a couple bucks on whatever team, then maybe it gives me something to, to cheer for. Well, not not to say that our discussion has been useless, but it looks like nine hours ago, the funding was suspended by Kickstarter. So uh, they've raised, it's converting here for me. So they've raised about 22 and a half of their 10 million, $22,500 of their $10 million goal with 13 backers. Okay, it's, so been a, it's been a few days in, but... um. Their their lowest membership to have some sort of ownership and control over the team was five hundred and seventy US, and that's a two year bronze membership. But it's interesting that it's been paused by Kickstarter. I'm going to have to do some. Inf- I'm going to have to do some digging on that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, we could do it here if we wanted to. Um. Yeah, maybe we will. 
maybe if there's a, a Valorant franchise up for grabs and maybe we'll go back to front funder and like, Chris, do you want to own like part of our Valorant franchise? Mm, mm. And it, that was, that was exactly the, that was exactly the same story order, right? That they went through, yeah. you know, they want fans to be able to, you know, I think that, that was when order was quite new. I'm pretty sure they got announced in late 2017, early 2018. And by the end of 2018, yeah, they announced their public crowdfund because like, Hey, we've picked up some traction you know, we've got a strong board behind us. You know, we've we've invested some money. Now, you know, be part of our founding crew. You know, come and follow our journey throughout that whole period of time in Australian esports and beyond. Yeah, awesome. No, I think it's great. Yeah, you got to get creative. You know, mm, mm, that's really true. And I guess another, like another thing that that you and I have talked about to death is is diversification of revenue, like in the esports industry, and also you know esports versus gaming. Be really interested to, to learn about with you guys with with Amuka, you know. Obviously, you've talked a bit about how you went over the coronavirus period of time, but just talking about you know how important diversification of income streams is for you guys. And I and I also want to know when when do you know when to stop? You know, diversification income streams is good, yes. But say if you've got ten thousand income streams that are bringing you three dollars each, then maybe it's not quite worth it. So be interested yeah. to learn a little bit about your internals. So I always remind, so we have a, we have an esports incubator, talk about diversifying revenue streams. Um, and, uh, you know, I always remind them, you know, the esports industry is give or take, it's a billion dollar industry. I think it's gonna be 1.1, 1.2, whatever it is for 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, the video game industry is, you know, 150 billion plus. So esports mm-hmm. isn't even 1% of the video game industry. So while everyone is so focused on esports and the competitive side, you got to remember it is less than 1%. So I think with that in mind, um, your revenue, if, you know, let's say at our place, I think we are very heavily reliant on the esports, on competitive gamers coming in, but we're missing out on a lot of casual gamers, non gamers, old gamers. There's a term, uh, see, oh, great gamers. You heard of great gaming? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had, we had the Counter Strike. Uh, yeah, team comes the silver, silver snipers. Silver snipers. Yeah, he came on uh, the organized gaming podcast. So senior citizens who are you know who are gaming. So I really think you have to capture that. But to your point, exactly, you have to stay focused. So what we kind of did was we looked at a hub, kind of created that type of analogy where you know we want a venue to be a community space, and we are okay with any revenue stream that come comes out of that venue. So. Um, you can come to play if you know, we'll do productions. We have a production studio that we rent out. We have stream stations that we rent out tournaments, merchandise, but again, everything has to be connected to some central thesis of what you're doing. And for us, it's a physical venue. So if you want to be a, whatever part of the industry you're in, absolutely like do that and, and do a few different things, but focus on what you're good at. And I see a big mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs are doing is they're just they try something and it's just like not good and they just kind of give up and try something else like do one thing and and succeed and finish it and see it to the end and you know what and then and do something else but don't always just be looking for the next coolest thing um you got to focus um and if, if things aren't going well yeah you know what it's going to be hard but don't give up just see it through yeah, yeah, and that gaming versus esports thing that you mentioned is extremely important. And I couldn't count on all my fingers and toes how many times in the past three months I've said that to people who are, you know, inside the industry, outside the industry, looking to come in, like whoever else. And you know, often the thing I say even is that the games industry in Australia is bigger than esports globally. 
Um, and, you know, we're only a 25 million person population state with terrible internet. <laughs> oh, it's not state, but country. And yeah, just thinking about where are those lines blurred and who blur those lines well. And I think you'd be crazy to look past Fortnite. I think Fortnite has done fantastic things at blurring those lines where you could make an argument that Ninja's an esports athlete. He's played in Valorant tournaments. He's won cash. He's played in Apex Legends tournaments. He's won cash. You know, he's played in um, Fortnite tournaments, both for charity and for money, you know, winning and, and placing highly. But ultimately, he's an entertainer. But does that really matter? Maybe not. You know, and, and similar with a lot of these organizations, you know, how many Fortnite organizations are there that exist? You know, there's Raised by Kings, there's Parallel, there's Kangana. And those are literally just just a group of kind of Fortnite bros who shout each other out. You know, they're not that same kind of context that you've got a Team Liquid or a Cloud9 or something like that, and they're okay. And a lot of the players in those teams have left the Team Liquid and a Cloud9 and such to go into that kind of organization where they're really just, you know, wanting to join the same reason why they might want to join Click Management because Click Management has Laserbeam and Muselk and Lachlan, three gigantic YouTubers that, you know, you want to join them because they'll shout you out and they'll help you grow. And we've seen that time and time again. There's an Australian content creator called Mao in Fortnite right now who I've done some commercial work with in the past with Asus, but he's just exploded because he's made a great friendship with some of these large YouTubers. So he doesn't need that gaming team at all. You know, there's there's no reason why he would need that. And I think, you know, if, if people want to do a little bit more reading on this, I'd say to go back to do some research on YouTube about Nick Merckx and his history with 100 Thieves and Faze and things like that as well. Because it's really interesting to me, yeah. you know, like why does Nick Merckx need to be in a team? He doesn't because he's easily top five, top 10 streamer in the world as far as, you know, subscribers, revenue and, and viewership goes. But for him, it, you know, it became something different. But it's for the point where, you know, he was saying teams were offering him $5,000 a month you know, to represent them. But why? Why does he need that? You know, he needs to do more work for them. He could just make that extra $5,000 in one hour of streaming. I would say the majority, I'd say most of the top streamers are not affiliated with the team. Maybe like Tifu being the last kind of big one that I can think of. Because uh, eventually when you're that big, you're your own brand. Like, you know, Tifu is, is a good example. Like how much does he need the phase, the phase brand? Uh, how much did Ninja need the Luminosity brand? You know, so eventually... Shroud was he was C9 before he was last. Yeah, he played for yeah he played for C9 as a CS:GO player. I think I think he still represented them under contract, quite possibly. Yeah, so I think once you're that big, I mean, listen, you're I don't see the need for the brand, and you're creating your own org, and sometimes maybe you'll feel you're being overshadowed overshadowed by that, and you want the independence. So you know, mm. it makes sense. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess the latest example is Lachlan. You know, he's the most subscribed YouTuber in Australia. Come up in come up in YouTube and now massive in Fortnite. He just released his own Fortnite team called Team Power. And um, yeah, love, love, the, love the brand. Looks cool. Now, let me just look at their YouTube video real quick. I mean, their Team Power announcement had 1.9 million views on YouTube, their first ever video. You know, I think I posted, I posted about it on LinkedIn and, you know, the post didn't perform that well, but talking about how in the first two weeks of launch, these guys have as many views as any of the top esports, T1 esports organizations in the world. You know, just their first three videos in two weeks. And now they're sitting at 1.9 million on their announcement, 2.5 million on their first video, 1.2 on their second, 754 on their third. But that 754K, the video's only been out for 12 hours. Yeah. So wow. crazy numbers. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. cool. I mean, you can start things that have that tremendous power, mm. uh, especially on the entertainment side. Yeah, and there's obviously some people that, that feel the need to be in the team for various reasons. You know, you've got 100 Thieves has a content creator house. You know, you've got Nick Merckx who's talked about, you know, um, potentially having um, his own 
you know, ownership of 100 Thieves in the past. You've got, um, you know, FaZe are massive. You know, if you if you sign with FaZe, well, then you have the possibility to play games at Offset, who's got 16 million Instagram followers, who's bigger than, you know, pretty much any gamer and Yo Gotti and all the other people that are involved in that FaZe ecosystem. So it makes sense. But like you were saying, you know, if you're a big streamer, it's like, why? You know, why do you need to sign with a team? And I think a lot of content creators are realizing that too. When they're coming up, they'd rather sign with this content creator team, with a Kangana, with a, you know, with a Power, with a Raised by Kings, rather than just signing with a Cloud9 or, or something like that for a free mouse. Yeah, I think as you build your career, it makes tremendous value to be a part of a team, which you're going to learn the context. And look, it's like with any career, right? Like you work for the big four, right? You uh, learn the skills, learn how to build a business, how things work. Then you're ready to go on your own, be an entrepreneur, start something. Mm, that's true. That's true. So what's what's coming up next in your world, Ben? What are you working on at the moment? Well, we're very uh, eagerly waiting to see when the opening dates will be. Um, you know, we want to be able to start really planning Q3, Q4 events, but we're not 100% sure when that will when we'll open, what it'll look like, what the restrictions are. So we want to get some clarity from public health on that. Um Otherwise, um, you know, for us, we're looking at more locations. Uh, I was just down at a really cool place um, called Seascape. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say where <laughs> place that I'm going to. Um, but uh, yeah, we're looking at making some really cool acquisitions uh, to add a few more venues to really build out that network. Um, you know, when you when you do a tournament at one venue, let's say you have a five thousand dollar prize pool. Well, that's expensive. That's five thousand dollars that you have to get from a sponsor or whatever. Uh, but you do it because it's going to fill the seats at your venue. Well, now that same $5,000 will really fill the seats at our, both of our venues. Because it's the same tournament. We can do LAN at both. Now that we have five tournaments, same $5,000 is going to fill the seats at five venues. So that's where the scale really makes sense. Um, and also with sponsors. Yeah, it's great running an event at our you know Waves location in Toronto. But you definitely pay a lot more if you're going to run in five events. So... Mm. Um, we need that scale, and I think that's where we're really seeking out venues. And I think now is the time for our industry, in particular our vertical, to consolidate a little bit. Um, and um, you know, that's really that's what my big plans are. And do you guys see a, a, a massive commercial advantage coming? You know, due to coronavirus and the, and the economic, um, you know, potential economic downturn that comes with that. Are are these venues having trouble? You know, getting new tenants in, and you guys are able to sweep in and get a good deal because of that. Uh, yeah, uh, no comment. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think for the most part, yes, that is the case. Um, people are hurting. Um, you know, you have to cover your costs while you're closed. So there's a lot more um, motivation to have some consolidation in the industry and people see the value that it makes a lot of sense. I'm also seeing from a lot of venue owners the sense that, you know, March was really good. And, you know, when you have a taste of success, which I think in Canada, I think all venues had a great March. It was a great month. We had a very bad winter. So you're like, nah, maybe not. Let's just see what happens. So I'm kind of getting both from both sides. Half of them are saying, absolutely, this time we see it black and white. We got to make this deal happen. And others are saying, yeah, you know, hopefully it'll be back to what it was in March. And, you know, we'd rather just try to go it alone. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, I've got a I've got a friend who's a commercial and private. You know, he owns his own commercial and private realty here in Melbourne, quite, very successful. Um, and you know, he's saying that he thinks the bottom's going to fall out of the market here in Australia. But yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see. You know, my parents are waiting to purchase a house so they can 
hopefully live closer to me. So if that happens, I mean, selfishly, it's good, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens over a longer period of time, you know, with, with organizations, like we said before, who aren't lean, you know, a lot of these esports organizations who are raising a lot of capital to achieve that profitability, you know, potentially in 2021, 2022, et cetera, you know, thinking about Gfinity, for example, you know, their last, um, their last year report, you know, they said that they're looking to achieve, you know, an, an even EBITDA by, I think it was the end of 2021 or so, but are they going to be able to continue to raise that capital to be able to get there or do they need to make some major changes internally? Like it's going to be really interesting to see and I think part of it that I'm really holding out for is now the financial year has ended is those public statements coming out from those public companies, from the moguls, um, you know, in Australia, from Emerge Gaming in Australia, from um, you know, Gfinity across in the UK, Super League Gaming in the US, these ones that have traditionally been spending quite a lot of capital to get to where they are today, I'm going to be really interested to see their economic response. I agree. For us, you know, sort of being more in the venue and tournament vertical, um, we're very curious what Super League does. Uh, we're very curious what Ally does, what Simplicity. Um, are there any other public uh, venue or tournaments? Yeah, like th- those three in particular. Um, and just in Canada, we have a lot of esports companies that are publicly traded here or esports and gaming. Uh, so what does Enthusiast Gaming do? What is Victory Square? What is Versus? What is Brag? What is all these, you know, sort of smaller caps, ePlay? Um, so yeah, you know, we, we rise and fall with the tide. If these esports companies that are public don't do well, doesn't really support, um, you know, a new investor base for us to go public. So, and I wish all my competitors the best of luck. In the public markets yeah that's really true and i mean that's something that, that we didn't talk about is um you know you guys have obviously made your intentions clear that you're that you're looking to list publicly has coronavirus put a bit of delay on that or are you still still steaming ahead um it was never you know we always work backwards we said what's the best way you know to run a publicly traded company what size should that company be what are the revenues what are the bur- what's the burn rate how close are you to being you know cash flow positive and you know ebitda um, and then again, that's the goal. That's where we want to be. And let's work backwards. So while there was a goal, we did think for Q4, we could probably go public. Um, we now probably would say it'll be the first half of next year, but yeah, that's just assuming we can get there revenue wise. If we can through acquisition be a little bit stronger and hit those targets and where we wanted to do, yeah, maybe we would be on track, uh, for Q4. Um, so it, it, it's really more about, um, you know, how do we get to what we feel at sort of 20 to $40 million market cap? Um, how do we get, how, how do we have the revenue to justify that market cap, which is kind of like the sweet spot to go public? Yeah. And I'm really glad you said that. It, that's, that's another thing that I've been talking about so much. And I don't think publicly, I think just privately in saying that I've seen so many proposals come through in the esports market um, where they don't seem to have worked backwards where they should have. And I use the example, imagine Tesla formed their company, built their battery factory, did all the R&D, built a car, spat out the other end and then said, okay, how much do we need to sell this car for? Yeah. Okay, we got to sell it for three and a half million and it's a Model 3. And you go, okay. okay, maybe not. And that's that's what I've seen with some proposals from, you know, even high-level esports companies where they'll send me through a proposal and I'll say to them, you know, how do you justify this price? And they say, well, that's market price. I go, well, okay, what's that? what's that based off? What's the actual value? You know, and I think a lot of that is because looking at their books, the amount of capital they're raising, They've gone, well, we need to sell $5 million worth of inventory, so we just need to sell $5 million worth of inventory and just need to go and make it happen without actually thinking about, you know, what's the value that's provided in, in the back end of that? You know, is the are the assets we're selling worth $5.5 million to be able to sell them for five? 
and that's the best that's the like the number one reason or the best thing about being a public public company is there's now objective value you know like the we were case is like the best example of what's the company worth as long as there's a lead investor that'll keep saying it's worth more and more then it's then it's a 50 billion 100 billion whatever we work was worth and, and then that falls out so mm. uh, that's what i love i love seeing what companies are worth in the private markets and maybe they are maybe they're not but once they go public i love capitalism and uh investors will tell you very very quickly what your company's worth um and yeah, I think you got to be real with it. And sometimes it's going to be a reckoning. And that's happened to a lot of esports companies. And other times, um, you know, maybe you're undervalued you, and you're going to get a huge lift. So, um, mm. yeah, that's what excites me about it. That's a good point. You know, we we had a potential strategic investment like my company was looking at last year. We, we were approached by a couple of different companies who are in the traditional um, events market and and sports data that wanted to work with us on a play and talking to them about esports multiples. You know, we presented them with a lower esports multiple than what you see on Forbes, you know, 10 to 22x with a lot of these teams. But they said they didn't agree with the multiple. And the, the point from them was, look, we're not deciding between big esports and another esports company. We're deciding between big esports and a mining company and an, and an app development agency and a PR agency and, you know, a mechanic chain and things like that too. And, you know, I think understanding within esports that, you know, we've been sitting in that hype spot for a long time, but there's only so long that that, that, that lasts when people are going to start looking at those returns. And, you know, like you said, you know, does that 7 to or 10 to 22x um, you know, revenue thing fly when they list publicly? Maybe, maybe not, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, when this, when this comes along or is it going to be more, you know, our teams like FaZe going to, going to thrive or Fnatic, you know, talking to their top brass, you know, they're functioning at a much, much lower um, X, you know, than, than some of these other teams, so like a Cloud9 or a Liquid. Yeah, I hate that argument when people say, well, that's what, like, this guy's worth, so that's what I'm worth. It's like the laziest answer ever. Look, Obviously, you have to look at comparables. When you're selling a house, why is your house worth this? Hey, because this guy here had two bathrooms and three bedrooms and sold for this. So, like, I understand that you got to use a comparable, but like, it, some esport multiples are such horseshit. Uh, you know, part of my language, it's just, um, yeah, and I, I just don't get it. Um, the Forbes list is nice because it provides some context, mm. some objectivity to esports valuations. Um, I think so at the last one and I've looked at this list and I've tried creating my own list as well. Um, you have TSM and cloud nine at, at the top of the scale at about $400 million. So where's that going to hold this year? And, and they have, you know, more than, uh, more than doubled from the year before. I think you have to figure. And again, uh, here's another good point. How does Forbes come up with their numbers? They're really basing it on funding rounds, which are again, mm -hmm. just subjective valuations anyway. So, I think it's. I think someone needs to do a little bit more work. I'd love to say it's going to be me. I just got to find the time. Um, what do we value? What's the market value of an Overwatch franchise? Mm. Are, are you in the money from the twenty-five million dollars US you may have bought it for, or is it now at a loss? What's the same thing with your COD franchise? I think if you really go through all the assets and make the case, that'd be such a more academic exercise that would really reflect what team values are for. Otherwise, just like. It's just what the last guy would pay. That's, that's such a ludicrous way to value a company. Mm, that's true. And, you know, you mentioned about the, you know, someone needs to work on the valuation stuff. I can tell you I am with someone. So there's, oh, there's, something, in the pipeline. there's something in the pipeline for that. And hey, similar I, questions. I with that. Could, could we be, can this be yeah, a sure. project here? Because I, um, I created a bit of a rubric from when I, 
I, I made my predictions for what I thought the Forbes list would look like if it came out in Q1. Uh, yeah, okay. And um, yeah, I'd like to. And I, I, the problem is, is, is that I, 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 I really rate sponsorship revenue very highly. And that's the one figure that's the hardest to really know. Like mm. BMW just sponsored, you know, like five teams and FBX and a whole bunch. I don't know what it's worth. So that's where I was really blind is like, I don't know what these sponsorships, but the value is worth. Um, but I assume that non-endemics are going to be probably worth a little bit more than endemics. Again, just a guess. Uh, and I looked at the number of sponsorships they had and then tried to come up with what I thought would be the valuations. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm working with a group. And I don't think I can say who they are, but I'm working with a group who's done traditional team valuations before in, in large you know, in, in large markets. Um, so, and, and asking, you know, us talking internally exactly the same kind of questions that you were talking about. I'm really interested to see, you know, how do you value an Overwatch franchise spot today? And how do you value a, you know, a Call of Duty League spot today, you know, compared to how they might have been valued in the past? So, and again, this is why it's so funny is how would you value, I'll tell you how you would value it today is you'd look at what the last guy sold it for. So, right, so if you really want to know what a um, LCS franchise is, I don't remember what Echo Fox went for, but that's the value. That's like the most accurate value. That's what the market yeah. it would pay for. Yeah. So, well, like LCK at 8 to 10, right? Yeah, like whatever the last transaction is, especially on the sell side, is a very strong indication. Um, I And I think we've only had one Overwatch team that's been sold, right? Houston, um, Houston Outlaws. And we've had zero Call of Duty franchises, so we don't know what they would fetch for on the open market. Um, but yeah, it'd be good to really try to figure it out. Yeah, that's really true. And we had one one question um, in the LinkedIn live chat as well. I want to get your thoughts on. They were just asking about thoughts about Rocket League be- potentially becoming a tier one esport, and you know, kind of the RLCS announcement and its future. Uh, no, I, I don't see it. Um, I think they've done a shit job. Uh, working with the teams and clarifying where this league is going to go. I think the fact that C9 totally said we're totally done, like they're not even interested in seeing how it's going to be rejigged. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, from a fan perspective, I, I just kind of find it boring to watch. Like I just, I play the game a little bit and like, I think it's fun, but I just don't think it translates well for viewership. I just can't see major networks. I can't see ESPN covering it. Like, so, um, yeah, I, I really just don't see the economics of it. Uh, I think it's it's the one game that has no competitor, which is cool. Like, Dota has League. There's always someone, you know, Fortnite has whatever, Warzone or PUBG. Like, every game has another game pushing it to be better, except Rocket League. And I think, like, what's Rocket League? Like, how are they going to improve the game? How's it going like, to stay exciting? You know, it's not like sports games where there's new rosters and new teams. So, for those reasons and many others, um, I, I still think it'll be a viable esport, but not definitely not tier one. Yeah, I think I think it sits pretty in tier two. Um, you know, part of the advantage is it's so easy to understand. It's remote control football or soccer. Car you know, remote control soccer. car. Yeah, yeah. So it's so easy, and I and I found, I, I found when I was at Corsair. And and thermal take throughout the years, kind of running booths at land parties and you know high school events and things like that. What people gravitate towards, and people gravitated towards two things primarily. Number one was um, any sort of um, any any sort of racing game 
So like a racing simulator, people would hear the sounds of the Formula One and they'd be straight there to watch it. And the other one was Rocket League for some reason. It would just drag people in so much. But then the question is, does that mean it's a participatory sport, not a watching sport then? But my commercial hat, like I think there's so many awesome opportunities there. Like I posted on LinkedIn the other day, I'd love to see like Team Ferrari Cloud9 and them driving around in a Ferrari 458 Spider in the game versus, you know, FaZe Nissan driving around an R35 GDR and, you know, Team Ford with a nice Shelby and things like that too. Or a brand taking over the skin of the whole tournament where every single um, every single team is playing in a Porsche or something like that. You know, I, th- I think there's so many good opportunities around that because we've seen in the past, Mobile One sponsored it. So, you know, there's obviously been that non-endemic interest. Um, 7-Eleven sponsored it as well in joint with their, they had a drink called Brisk, I believe, in the US. So they, they did a joint sponsorship, 7-Eleven, the brand, as well as their own brand, Brisk, of, of drink and things like that. So they've had a lot of non-endemic interest. But yeah, I, I was a little bit confused, I think, about some of the RLCS announcement just because... Um, they made the full announcement, but then they also said, like, and we're still figuring out what to do with some of the minor regions. And I kind of felt like, well, maybe you should have figured that out first before you made the announcement, especially considering, um, yeah. you know, bias aside, because I'm not a big Rocket League fan, but bias aside, you know, here in Australia, we've got two of the best teams in the world in the past, which is Tainted Minds and, and Chiefs, who've performed extremely well on the global stage. So I'd be, I'd be annoyed, I think, if, if I was them too thinking that, you know, they have a sort of semi-unclear pathway as to how to get to those finals. Yeah, I think Rocket League would have also been better totally open and unfranchised. Um, and again, they kind of like walked the line. It wasn't, and it is, and it's not, and now there's the two divisions. Um, and also, uh, yeah, you have great points about the cars and things like that, and just different modes. What are the other modes? Like, yes, I know you can do 2v2 and 1v1, and there's a basketball uh, mode and there's a hockey mode but like it's not like other games where there's just different gameplays that just totally change the game and make it interesting at the end of the day rock league i just think it's, it's stagnant in that and uh, i just don't think you can really move into tier one it's a tough it's tough to be in tier one i mean and it's definitely a even a discussion on what is tier one and what's not tier one but um mm. you know, it's really mm. only i think three or four games that really meet that criteria yeah, and it's definitely a lot of money to be T1, right? Unless you're magical like Counter-Strike, uh, where everyone else is spending the money for you, like Flashpoint and Blast Pro Series and ESL and all that kind of stuff and E-League. Um, but otherwise, you know, it requires you to launch a massive franchise league like League of Legends or Overwatch or something like that, which is a big capital. Yeah. I think they should have like, let third-party tournaments or organizers run, run some tournaments, the major tournaments. Like, mm. just leave it to face it or, you know, to Blast or to, you know... Let other people do it. I think they just they know how to run great events. They know how to make it exciting. Yeah, yeah. So if, that's they're true. if they're listening, you know, <laughs> take our advice, okay? Because we know what we're talking about. Exactly, exactly. We are the Bill and Endul. And I think you know we we've had you for a while now, so we should wrap up. But one one thought I want to leave you and and everyone else with something that I talked to one of my mentors about this week, and I've been thinking about heavily ever since is um, are a lot of these companies within esports focused on the loss leader of esports and how can they focus more on the data and the value provided behind the face so often esports is a loss leader in itself you know league of legends will run their global championship series to push people into the casual game i came into dota 2 you know the game was too hard i played a little bit of dota went back to league but ti3 international 2013 you know which was originally pushed as a loss leader 
push me into Dota and I'm, I'm three, four thousand hours into that stupid game thus far. So it's just something I would like to leave you and, and other people to have a think about is, you know, what's the data and what's the audience capture behind what you're doing and how do you actually own your fans? And obviously with the MUCA, some of the things you said, you guys are working on that with the local facilities and such too. But, you know, if, say if you're just running tournaments and you're using someone else's game and you're using a white label platform, what do you really own over that period of time and what value does your business have? Yeah, it's definitely a good point. You know, I, the way I always position it is I don't really care what game's popular. It makes zero difference for me, and I have zero risk in terms of what's hot and what's not. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, I'm just about people getting together and forming relationships and building communities with whatever game they want. So I just don't feel I have that same risk. Like if I ponied up 25 mil for an Overwatch franchise, I'd be damn pissed. You know, if that game wasn't a success and the developer didn't push it and do all the things it could have in that league. Um, but for me, yeah, we, we don't run any Overwatch tournaments. It's like no skin off my back. So if everyone's going to play hy- Hyperscale, sorry, I don't even know. What's Ubisoft's Battle Royale? Hyperscale. I don't even know. Hyperscale. Ah, okay, well, it's a big, it's going to be huge, big new Battle Royale by Ubisoft. Great. People, it's, if it's going to be huge, amazing. Like We'll do tons of tournaments and... I'll do very well with it. And if no one plays the game, it doesn't matter. So I think mm. that's that's the way we see it is just do you want to be held hostage by the tastes and, and patterns of gamers and what games they play? Or do you just want to be the picks and axes in the gold rush? And uh, that's, where, that's what I think we do. Yeah, that's really true. All right, mate. Well, thanks for joining us. If, if someone wants to follow you online, where can they do so? Yes, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, although my profile picture is a very short beard, but uh, it is me. So yeah, Ben Pfefferman. Uh, I'm taking a break from Twitter, so maybe don't follow me on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm kind of over it. Um, but yeah, find me on LinkedIn. That's like uh, that's more for a guy like me. Fantastic. Thanks, mate. And thanks to everyone who's listening in, whether you're listening in to the podcast or live here on LinkedIn be coming back with so many more topics sorry we've had a little bit of a break but our podcast has still been pumping out strong so thanks guys we'll see you soon bye for now thanks for tuning into our podcast today for show notes relevant links and upcoming projects you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg